Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Well, good morning and it's good to be with Heritage Baptist Church again. Uh, I love this church and it's just been a joy to see how the Lord has uh, blessed this church since it's uh, planting and uh, Lelo said that I am a a grandfather around here. Well, literally, I am a grandfather around here um, because Rory and Bo and Onalena are my grandchildren. I am the father of Lydia, for those of you who do not know. Um, and uh, it's in, when she got married to G, um, it was sad when she left the home. It was really sad when she left the membership of our church. And um, I'm trying not to have a root of bitterness towards you for taking my daughter, um, but just thrilled that uh, she and G are here and uh, for what the Lord is doing in this church. Um, Lelo mentioned about uh, empty seats because of the time of year. Um, I can remember when this church met in the scout hall when it first started and uh, how empty it was there. And just to see how the Lord is blessed and grown this church is a wonderful thing. I was thinking today about empty seats. I was involved in a church plant over 30 years ago in the South, and uh, it was a very, very difficult thing to plant a church. And one Sunday, my wife and our daughters were, were all sick, and so I went to church by myself, and one person showed up. And uh, I had this message prepared, so I preached my heart out to this one person in the church, and she fell asleep. So I don't mind having empty seats, but if you all fall asleep, that's not gonna be good. I often tell people I'm the only guy I know that preached and 100% of his congregation fell asleep. So uh, let's try to avoid that this morning. I wanna preach this morning from Matthew chapter one. And uh, I wanna preach about the big story. Uh, the big story which we have, uh, as churches, just spent a lot of time looking at, the incarnation of of Jesus Christ. Uh, I know that there was a series here. I was here for uh, on the 17th or for one of those when Lalo spoke about why Jesus Christ came. And I'm not going to repeat all that, but I do want to just remind us today that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is such a big story that it should not be limited just to one particular week of the year that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is something that is to inform us as Christians every day of our life. Because though there are many uh, themes related to the incarnation, one of the most fundamental is what we sang about earlier uh, that, uh, of God's great faithfulness. The big story in Matthew chapter 1 is really the faithfulness of God. We have the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We have a record of the birth of Jesus Christ and the appearance of the angel of the Lord, most likely Gabriel, 
to Joseph, informing him that Mary is pregnant not by immorality, but by the Holy Spirit. And in this chapter, we see overwhelmingly the faithfulness of God to his promises. And then the chapter ends with a display of faith on the part of Joseph. And so this big story in all through Matthew, but particularly in chapter 1, is this big story of God's faithfulness and the faith of those who are his people. And I want to remind us of that this morning, and I trust encourage us to live in light of the truth of God's faithfulness that we'd respond in faith to him. I'm going to preach four points from this uh, chapter. We're going to look at the big story is a marvelous messianic story, and we see that in verses 1 to 17. We're going to look at the big story as a majestically mysterious story in verse 18. The big story is a mercifully miraculous story, verses 19 to 21. And the Christmas story needs to be a personally meaningful story. And we'll see that in verses 22 to 25. Um, these, these points are, are double-barreled, and I can call it a four-point sermon, but really it's eight points. So I trust that the Lord will feed us well from his word. I want to begin reading in verse 1 and then jump down immediately to verse 18. Matthew chapter 1 in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 18 tells us now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he, literally, for he it is, will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the incarnation. We thank you, Father, for this glorious account in Matthew chapter 1. And we simply pause now and ask, Holy Spirit, that you would take your word which you have given to us, and that you would point us to Jesus Christ. Help us who know him to be brought into deeper fellowship with him. Help us, as we just sang, to be more conformed to him. And help us, Holy Spirit, to know that we belong to him. And for those who do not, may you use this gospel message to bring your people to yourself. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, this is the gospel according to Matthew. And the word gospel has an interesting history in the ancient world, particularly in the Roman world. When a king, when an emperor was born, they would actually use the word euangelion, gospel, the good news that a king has been born. It was good news and it was very, very big news. Well, there was no bigger news than the news of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords being born in Bethlehem. And Matthew is going to write an entire book pointing out particularly to the Jews that this Jesus is the Christ. That this Jesus is the Messiah. We are told in verse 1, this is the book of the genealogy, literally the book of the Genesis. It's the story of Jesus Christ. Many people seem to think that Christ was the surname of Jesus, but that is, of course, not true. Jesus, as we'll see at the end of the chapter, he's named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus tell, the name Jesus tells us what he does. He saves his people. And Christ tells us who he is. He is the Messiah. The Messiah, he is the king. He is literally the anointed one. Jesus Christ is the anointed prophet in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18:15. He is the anointed priest in fulfillment of Psalm 110 in verse 4. He is the anointed king as is oftentimes prophesied in the Old Testament. And so here we have the genealogy of Messiah, the genealogy of the king of the Jews, the genealogy of, and this sounds strange, the Lord of Lords. This big story begins with an account of a marvelous messianic story. As you read through the various names, through the genealogy, through the story of Jesus, we learn something about his past, as it were. I love reading biographies. And all good biographies begin, at least with one chapter, talking about the genealogy of the individual. They speak about where they came from and their heritage, and sometimes they go back as many as two or 300 years to help us to understand the background of this individual. Well, this genealogy in Matthew does the same thing for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in this genealogy, it's a, we're, we're told he's the son of Abraham, which means he is a Jew. He is the son of David, which means he is in the right genealogy to be the king of the Jews. God had made a covenant with David that there would come from his loins the ultimate king, and that is Jesus Christ. But as you read through this genealogy, it's actually a very, very messy genealogy. It's a genealogy that is filled with all kinds of failure. Failure amongst those that are God's people. It is a genealogy that, con that, that contains those who are guilty of lying. It contains uh, those who, uh, a genealogy of those who were idolatrous. It contains a genealogy of those who were immoral. This is a very, very messy but real genealogy of Jesus. 
In all of this, you would think as you read some of these names that God would have just abandoned his plan that he had made in Genesis 3.15 to send his son, the seed, to crush the serpent's head. You think that God would abandon his plan that he would bless the nations through the nation of Israel because though there are some Gentiles in this genealogy, most of these are Jews and all of them were sinners, some more notorious than others. And yet in this messy genealogy, which speaks about failure, it speaks about the folly of God's people, it speaks about the, the, the terrible sins of God's people, in, in spite of all of that, Jesus Christ came and he was born. In spite of all the failure of God's people, God remained faithful. The story of Christmas, the big story is that God is faithful. That, that though we fail, that we are faithless at times to our shame, and I appreciated the honest prayer of Caleb, that we are so often unfaithful, and yet God is faithful. Two years ago this week, I was in the ICU at the Donald Gordon, and what was supposed to be just a three-day time stay in the hospital turned into almost three months. And after weeks and weeks of treatment, I was not getting much better. My infection rate was, was high, and one of the doctors came in one day, and he said, we just got your blood re results back, and, and he said, things are not, not looking good. And this was after about six or seven weeks in the hospital, and I can remember just hearing that news, and so saddened and so discouraged, I just began to cry. And he said, he said Mr. Van Meter, he said, I, I think that you are depressed and you need to see a psychiatrist. And I said, no, I'm really not. And he called my wife, in fact, and he said, I just saw your husband, and I think he's depressed, and I think he needs some counsel. And my wife is a very wise person. She said, well, did you ever consider that maybe he's not depressed, he's just discouraged? And I was discouraged. But anyway, this, he sends his counselor anyway, and a very nice guy just doing his job, and he sat down and we began to talk, and he said, Mr. Van Meter, he said, my experience with people who are religious like you is that because you're religious, you automatically assume you're going to get better. And I said, well, let me just help you with that. I said, that may be true in the case of a lot of people that you've dealt with. I said, but I'm under no illusion. I said, I am fully aware that I may die in here. I said, but I want you to know that I'm still trusting Christ. I said, and though my faith wavers, he is faithful. And if he chooses to take me, then that is what is best for me. It will bring glory to him. Needless to say, the session was over and he never came back. But in that hospital, I had times where I was deeply discouraged and I, my, my life was flashing before me and I was seeing all my failure. And there were times where I was very low spiritually. And there were times where I had one thing to do and that was to cling to the faithfulness of Christ. Because I knew that I'm not faithful. I knew that I fail the Lord, but he is faithful. And whatever you're going through, you know, this time of year is generally a, 
a happy time of year. Kids are not in school, they're happy. The, pa the parents aren't so happy, but the kids are happy. They're not in school. And we have our holidays and we have our big Christmas day, most of us. But it's not always a happy time for people. There's sadness. We look back and we see our own failures and we experience the heartache of the failures of others. But in all this, we need to remember that at Christmas, we have the fulfillment of God's great promise that he's going to send his son who will save his people from their sins. That God is faithful. The genealogy is not here just so we can prove the lineage of Christ. It is that as well. One of the most remarkable things about this genealogy is it mentions twice a man by the name of Jeconiah. Jeconiah was a king of Israel. He was the son of Josiah, who was a faithful king, but Jeconiah was not. In fact, he was so evil that God gave a prophecy that no one from his loins would be king of Israel. So how is he mentioned here in this genealogy? Well, he's mentioned here in this genealogy because Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Jesus Christ fulfills the legal genealogy of being a son of David without being in the biological line of David because he is sinless. The genealogies point us to the faithfulness of God. It is a marvelous story. It's a, a messy story, but it's a story that points us to the faithfulness of our great God. And as we come to the end of a year, and as we begin to begin a new year, it's always a great time of reflection and a great time of resolve, and I am all for that. And we need to be resolving, Lord, help me to be more faithful this year than I was last year. But I know, God, that you are faithful and that you indeed will keep your promises. The Christmas story is a big story of the messianic marvel, the messianic faithfulness of our God. But secondly, it's a big story that is a majestically mysterious story. Look with me at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Just stop there. And consider the words, the birth of Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus, the Messiah. The birth of God, who became flesh. You know, we can become very nonchalant about the incarnation. And I'm always challenged, particularly this time of year, to reflect again and consider the incredible mystery of God in the flesh, of God becoming a man. In the 1970s, J.I. Packer wrote what is a classic now, a book called Knowing God. And I read that book several times, and I'm always struck by his uh, paragraphs where he talks about the incarnation. And Packer said that people oftentimes, when it comes to Christianity, they, they stumble over the wrong things. He said they stumble over the fact that of Jesus doing miracles. Did Jesus really do miracles? They, they stumble over the resurrection. Could someone really rise from the dead? 
And Jerry Packer said, in my, he said, in his opinion, they're stumbling over the wrong things. He th said the thing that they're to stumble over is the incarnation. God becoming a man. And he went on to explain that once we come to understand and believe the incarnation, once we come and understand God becoming a human being, God taking on human flesh, once we understand that, he said, everything else falls in place. If God has become a man, then easy to believe in the miracles. If God becomes a man, then it's easy to believe in the resurrection. I read a story by William Hendrickson, the commentator, some weeks ago, and he was saying that to an, a Christian man was witnessing to another man, and they were on the street corner, and he was, this guy was sharing the gospel with this unbeliever, and the unbelieving man pointed to another individual, and he said, you know, I can't believe this, he said, because of the virgin birth. And this unbeliever said to the Christian, he's pointing to a man, he said, what would you think, what would you say if I said that man doesn't have a human father? What would you say if I said that man over there was born of a virgin? And this Christian man very wisely said, if that man lives like Jesus Christ, then I'd believe it. Jesus Christ who is sinless, God in the flesh, that's an incredible, incredible mystery. And it is a majestic mystery. Uh, recently I read through the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is just beautifully laid out. You have 39 chapters of of judgment. And then you have 27 chapters promising salvation. And chapter 40 begins with, Behold, my servant, pointing us to Messiah. Behold, my servant. And he goes on and he describes the Lord God in that passage who can do anything. And Isaiah speaks of Yahweh as the one who is so huge. He is such a huge God, such a big God. He says that he takes all the, the waters of the oceans and he holds it in the middle of his hand. That's how big God is. He speaks about the fact that God takes the, can hold the universe between his thumb and his little finger and in the span he holds the entire universe. That the, the nations are like a mere drop in a bucket. He speaks about the fact that God has created the stars and he names them all. And it's that Yahweh who was born of Mary, who was laid in a manger, who like all babies, did what babies do. And here is this God who is, is huge, incomprehensible being who becomes a human being. Why? Because God is faithful. Because God made the promise. He would send his seed. He would send his son. He would send his Messiah. He would send his deliverer who would come and would live as a human being and would live sinless, he would prove that he is the last Adam, the second man from heaven, and unlike the first Adam who was tempted in sin, the last Adam would be tempted and would never sin, and he would live a sinless life, and then he would go to a cross, 
And he would die on that cross, and he would suffer the wrath of God for sinners like you and I. God became man. No wonder Paul would write in 1 Timothy 3, in verse 16, Great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifested in the flesh. The big story is a majestic, mysterious story of God becoming a man, 100% God and 100% man at the same time for you and I, for sinners like you and I, for sinners who repent and believe this gospel. It goes on, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be the child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The third thing we see in Matthew chapter 1 is that this big story, this Christmas story, is a mercifully miraculous story. The focal point of the Christmas story, of course, is Jesus Christ. But there are other minor characters in it. Mary, of course, is one of those who is faithful, and, and, and we read about her in Luke and her great faith as she receives this news that she is going to be the mother of the Christ child. But there's another individual here that sometimes is overlooked, and it's the man Joseph. Mary and Joseph were betrothed and in the ancient world, some places even today like this, uh, there was a betrothal period. It was, a, it was often organized between the parents of, of uh, the, uh, the woman and the man. Uh, I can remember when G came to see me about marrying Lydia, and uh, he, he mentioned Lebola, and I said, that's, that's not necessary. It's not a part of our culture. Lebola is not necessary, and then, so don't worry about that. And later on, I found out how much Lebola was, and I went back to him and said, can we talk again? <laughs> I like that culture. I think we should be multicultural here. And G, the ever businessman, said, no, you already said I don't have to do that. So here are Mary and Joseph betrothed. They haven't yet physically consummated the marriage, but there's a commitment. And the only way for that commitment to be broken would require a divorce, a legal divorce. There were some grounds for that. One of those was obviously, if you found out that the, your fiance was unfaithful. And so Joseph, we don't have the whole story, but he finds out, this is about four months into it, that Mary is expecting. He can see the evidence. And I'm sure she told him that an angel of the Lord has told me that I'm bearing the Christ child. And let's be honest, that would be hard to believe. 
Joseph is no doubt heartbroken about this and he assumes that she has been unfaithful and he's going to put her away, language of divorce. He's going to do that, but the Bible says he was a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. Some translations take just and translate it righteous. He was a righteous man. The way Matthew uses righteous, particularly you see this in the Sermon on the Mount, righteous is not simply doing the right thing. It's not simply doing the thing that is the biblical standard. It involves that. But the righteousness also involves a right kind of disposition. That a righteous person sees the law and says the law needs to be obeyed, but they also are merciful. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you have no hope of entering the kingdom. And there's a lot packed into that, but one of those things that the Pharisees were not known for was what? Mercy. At one point Jesus says to them, I, I, I would rather you do all these things, but add to it mercy. Joseph was a godly man. He wanted to do the right thing. He was just. He was also a man of mercy, and he would not, did not want to shame Mary. Perhaps that's in the story here, because the whole story of the incarnation is a story of God's mercy. God who is just. God who is righteous. He has his law. And he's going to do the just thing. He's going to punish sin. The soul that sins, he said, it shall die. And way back in Genesis, he warned Adam, the day you eat, you will what? You will die. God is just. God is righteous. And his law has to be upheld. But thank God he's also merciful. Joseph wanted to do the right thing. He wanted to obey the standard, but he also wanted to be merciful. He assumes that Mary has sinned, and yet he is treating her with mercy. In a far greater way, that is what the incarnation of Christ is about. That is what the crucifixion of what Christ is about. That is what the resurrection of Christ is about. That God who is just says, you're sinners and you must die. And I am just, and I cannot just wave my hand and ignore it. And so what does he do? He sends his son. His son, who we reminded of earlier, is sinless. He's without blemish. He's without spot. He is God. And yet he lives a, this sinless life, and then he goes to a cross, and he dies for sins that are not his, but ours. He takes our sins, he dies for those, and he gives us his righteousness. And as Paul argues in Romans 3, 21 to 26, in this glorious gospel way, God is both just and the justifier of sinners. He's just, he's not compromised his law. His law, the, the, the demands of the law have been satisfied in his son. And we who broke that law, who deserve God's justice, we deserve to be alienated, abandoned by him, forever condemned. Christ dies for us and the Father takes his righteousness, puts it on our account, and therefore he's both just and the justifier. 
The story of Christmas, the big story of the incarnation is just swimming in mercy. Merry Christmas is a phrase we heard a lot of up until last Monday. And I said to our church recently, we should start saying to people, merciful Christmas. Merciful Christmas. Remember at the incarnation God's mercy to us and let us treat others with that kind of mercy. I've been dealing with some serious sin this last couple of weeks and I'm appealing as these individuals are dealing with their sin to apply the mercy that they've experienced in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not just theoretical. We who have been forgiven much are to forgive. Joseph, I don't know much about him. I'm looking forward to meeting him in heaven and finding out more about him, but we know from this text he was a just man. He was a righteous man. He understood God's law, but he also understood God's mercy. That is brought together in a most powerful way. In verse 21, when the angel says to Joseph, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There were a lot of kids Jewish kids running around, boys running around that day by the name of Jesus. It was a common name. Joshua in the Old Testament. Joshua, Jehovah is salvation. It was a very, very common name. But there was something very, very uncommon about this. Joseph, all these other little Jesuses running around, all these other Joshuas, their parents have great aspirations for them, but none of those are going to come to pass like your son, like Mary's son. You're going to call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You could argue the translation should be, for he it is, emphatically. He it is alone. He will save his people from their sins. About 20, 25 years ago, I preached a Christmas message at our church from Matthew 121 called The Promise of Christmas. And I remember preaching that morning on this verse and driving away thinking, there is so much there, I need to go back to it. And I preached seven more Sundays on Matthew 121 and didn't even scratch the surface. What does it mean that he will save his people from their sins? It means at least this, that he's gonna save us from the penalty of our sins. That through Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection. Through that, he's going to deliver us from uh, condemnation from God. He's going to reconcile us to God. No more alienation. He's going to save us from the penalty of sin, which is everlasting wrath away from the presence of God. But it also means he's going to save us from the power of our sins. I've been a Christian for uh, 40 43 years, I think it is. In 43 years, I'm still praying the same thing every day. Make me more like Christ. Help me to experience the power of the gospel to overcome sin. And I have that promise. And, I, I, and I'm doing better in areas than I was 43 years ago. And there's other areas that are now mountains. But every day I can say, Jesus, you've come to save me. I'm one of your people to save me from the power 
of my sin. Jesus will save his people not only from the penalty and power of the sin, but also from the pleasures of our sin. I don't know where he wrote this, but I remember John Piper writing and saying that the only way to overcome a sinful pleasure is to have a greater pleasure. When our pleasure is Jesus Christ, that makes the pleasure of sin, it minimizes it in our lives. And as we experience by the power of the Holy Spirit more and more of communion with Jesus Christ, as we experience him and as the Spirit of God bears witness our spirit that we belong to God, sin loses its pleasures. And one day, thank God, because Jesus will save us from our sins, he's going to save us from the very presence of sin. Incarnation is not just the inauguration, as it were, of the gospel, but it's, it's the inauguration of a new creation. And one day, there's coming a day when believers will be glorified and there'll be no more need to say, please forgive me. There'll be no more need for confession of sin because we will be saved forever from the presence of sin. And we cry out, even so, come, Lord Jesus. The greatest miracle is the miracle of God's mercy in sending his son to save us from our sins. And the question I must ask is, do you know that miracle? Do you know that Jesus Christ has saved you from your sins? You say, how do I know whether or not I am one of his people? Has he saved you from your sins? Because those who are his people, he's saved from the penalty. And he's increasingly saving us from the power and saving us from the pleasure and one day saving us from the very presence of sin. And finally, this Christmas story, this big story, must become a personally meaningful story. We're told in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes from Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. If I had another sermon, I would preach on Emmanuel. God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Notice that word, he did. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph has this vision while he's asleep. It comes from the angel, as I said, probably Gabriel. This is a direct message from God. And when he awakes, we know that he believes the vision. And we know he believes the vision by that little word, did. He did, as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He did three things. He didn't divorce Mary. He took her to himself. He did not have physical relations with her. And when Jesus was born, he named him Jesus. That was an act of faith. There's a song we sing in our Sunday school. We taught our kids this song. I'm sure Lydia knows it. Obedience is the very best way 
to show that you believe. O B E D. I won't. I won't sing it for you. I thought about this last week. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. In a real sense, obedience is the only way to show that you believe. Joseph believed the big story of the incarnation. And we know that because he did what was commanded. He obeyed. Nobody is saved by their works. All of our good works, as Isaiah reminds us, are as filthy rags. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Because that's what scripture alone teaches us. But those who have believed the gospel, those who have believed on Jesus who saves his people from their sins, it is evident by a life committed to obedience. It's not a life of perfection, unfortunately, but it's a life of direction, of direction towards perfection, a life of loyalty to the one who has saved us. I was raised in a Christian home and I went to church every week and heard the gospel every week until I was 18 years of age and I went away from university. And when I had gone, when I went away from university, I was very far from God. And while I was away from university, several things God did in my life to bring me to the end of myself. And on the 11th of February, 1980, I'll never forget, I was in the dorm room of Miami University and getting on my knees and the Spirit of God had convicted me and shown me that Christ was my only hope and I remember him saving me that night. And I had some plans for two nights later to celebrate my 19th birthday with some friends and when my friends called the next day to confirm it, I said, I'm canceling those plans. I said, I, I don't, I'm not gonna do those things anymore. I said, Jesus Christ has changed my life. I'd love to tell you that I've had success after success since then, that's not been the case. But there was a change in my devotion, there was a change in my appetite, because Jesus who saves his people from their sins had come into my life. Brothers and sisters, as we end this year and begin a new year, let us do so looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, saying, please, this year, save me from the power of my sins. Save me from the pleasure of my sins. And please even come back and save us all forever from the presence of our sin. And if you don't know this Savior, today is the day. You're not here by accident. God's brought you here in his sovereign grace to hear the gospel. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and know the one who will save you from your sins. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of your son, a mystery that baffles the greatest minds God manifest in the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. 
And thank you that as we were reminded just two weeks ago here, Jesus, you came to deliver us from the evil one. And we thank you that as your people, you saved us from our sins and you continue to save us from our sins. And help us in 2024 to look to you in a more devoted way. Help us to do as you command us. Help our lives to conform more and more to your revealed will in your word. And for unbelievers today, oh Lord, may none leave an unbeliever. Holy Spirit, grant repentance and faith. They too might leave saying, Jesus is my Savior. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.